Welcome, everyone, to episode 82, 2016 in review. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm in pretty good shape. It's a new year. I'm excited about it. I don't know. The depression is still, I'm like, it's kind of a hangover from 2016. But I think we can put it away in this episode and move into 2017 with a bang, Kiki. I'm trying to get excited. There's a little bit of the holiday depression and the whole 2016 (laughs) depression looming still. Yeah, you know, it's the post-holiday letdown. You've had so much excitement and stress from just trying to get everything organized from the parties to celebrations to whatever you're doing. And now it's like, all right, back to the normal nose to the grindstone work a day life which is good but yeah i I tell you it's good it's great i've had enough of that other stuff are you kidding me (laughs) no more parties get back to work i don't know about you but enough with the gifts already it's out of hand and all the alcohol and the rich (sighs) food i need a month of detox and my kids i'm not gonna let them play with a toy for at least three weeks (laughs) no toys for you (laughs) focus on doing something I don't know. (laughs) Something. Something. Yeah, I'm excited about 2017 also. But, you know, I'm really excited. We're coming up to the end of the year of the monkey. If you're into Chinese astrology, Mm. this has been the year of the monkey. And the monkey has been a real pain in the butt. (laughs) I'm ready to move into the year of the fire rooster. (laughs) The fire rooster, that sounds yeah. a little bit worse. I mean, monkeys are mischievous, but fire roosters sound supernatural. Maybe a little bit. I don't know. I'm tired of the mischievousness. You know, roosters, they work hard. They're kind of in charge of things. They tell you what's... They're predictable. I can deal with that a little bit better. All right, I'll take a rooster. Maybe <laughs> without the fire. Let's see about that. Yeah. All right. Well, this show, we're fired up. We're totally fired up. Ready to get down to business? I'm ready. All right. So everyone, make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can find all of our past episodes and other great resources. You can follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right. We've got a very, very fantastic show today. And our very, very special guest for episode 82 is none other than our very own Dr. Dalen James. Yeah, we couldn't book anyone else in the holidays, so sorry. You're stuck with me. <laughs> stuck. No, this is going to be great. Dalen is going to talk to us about his work in his lab with stem cells. You know Dalen, the stem cell podcast host. Let's get a glimpse of Dalen, the scientist. But first, you know what we got to do? Let's round it up. All right. We've got a really awesome new partner for the roundup today. And it sounds like great resource for scientists. It's the Connexon Science Communications Newsletters. Connexon publishes a series of 20 free cell biology newsletters every week. 20 newsletters every week. That's a lot of newsletters, right? It summarizes the latest research publications, review articles, industry news, policy, events, and jobs in specific fields of cell biology. 
ESC and IPSC News, has been curating the latest research in the embryonic and induced pluripotent stem cell field since 2007. So they've been been doing this for just a little while. I think they know what they're doing, right? They know the field. They know what to tell you. They know what you want. And if you're interested, you can check it out at ESCellNews.com. That's ESCellNews.com. And you can subscribe for free to be able to get these newsletters. Wow. I mean, 20 things, 20 newsletters a week. You got to be able to find something in there that you like. Probably a bit of overlap at the roundup, I'm betting, too. So, you know, we're going to have to watch out for these guys. Yeah, I know. Maybe. We'll see. Could be a little overlap. But, you know, I think we bring something fresh. That's for sure. That's for sure. Like this week, you know what we're going to be rounding up? Not so fresh, though, this week, right? We're going back. (laughs) We're going back in time. That's right. We're taking a look back at the top discoveries of 2016. So a lot of general science discoveries. Dalen's got his stem cell science discoveries. 2016 was a big year. All right. So starting it out, the World Health Organization. You know, we loved it this year. We loved it, Dalen. Loved, loved to hate it. Zika. That's right. World Health Organization declared it a public emergency of international concern. This virus that really had not been talked about much before, this virus that had not made headlines before, was in the headlines nearly every week this year. It wasn't Ebola, but Zika, mosquito-borne Zika virus. It's linked to a spike in babies born with brain defects, microcephaly, deaths of babies, and uh, these neurological disorders have become a public health emergency of international concern. Researchers and funding agencies have made a move toward increasing investment in research and also mosquito control efforts to be able to control the virus and the consequences it has on individuals and populations. We've made ground on developing vaccines, developing therapeutic antibodies. There's been a lot of research done, a lot of advancement in our understanding of how it even interacts with the human body in the first place. 2016, a year of greater understanding, greater efforts, and greater fear of Zika. Yeah, a lot of good, a lot of bad, some encouraging results in science, but also some scary kind of indications. But even in spite of talking to some of these guys, and, you know, I have grown kids. My wife's probably never going to let me get her pregnant again, unfortunately. (laughs) You would think I'm not worried about the Zika, but I'm worried about it with the developing brains. I know probably listeners were familiar with my questions to these researchers, and I'm still a bit concerned about it. But you know what? I feel good about Zika now going into 2017 because I just heard that they have a Ebola vaccine that's like 100% effective that now is being stockpiled in advance of a presumed outbreak that's inevitable. So I think when this thing happened a couple years ago with Ebola and it mobilized the community, I'm hopeful that a similar kind of mobilization effort, maybe not in the the near term, uh, you know, in the next year, but I think it's inevitable. We're going to come up with a vaccine that's really going to be 100% effective, and then we can all sleep well at night and go back to the Caribbean, for Christ's sake. I know. You don't have to always vacation in the Scandinavian (laughs) north. (laughs) Yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. But I mean, we'll see. That's just an optimistic view. 
On uh, another note, you know, uh, we're going to stagger here in this roundup, bouncing back and forth. I think, you know, it's a good year to review. We can take turns. I'm going to tell you a bit about something that's even didn't even happen in the past year. This is, you know, the Yamanaka IPS research that was a seminal piece of work that actually turned 10 in the past year. It was a 10 year anniversary of that seminal Yamanaka IPS paper. And I just want to reflect a minute about what's happened in the last 10 years. You know, when these cells were initially generated, it was a big deal because I think everyone was focused on the limitations of ES cell research. You can't get them without destroying an embryo or donating oocyte or somatic cell nuclear transfer. There were all these issues, bioethical and, you know, really just straight ahead issues in terms of practicality. Can you do it? Are there enough embryos to generate enough ES cell lines? Well, in one fell swoop, that kind of went away. And I think people appreciate it at the time is like, okay, now we all have our own toolkit. We can make our own tissues and organs and we'll have an endless supply of tissues when ours go bad and we can live rough and rowdy. But, you know, as it turns out, I think IPS cells became much more of a vehicle for looking into the diversity of human beings, specifically as it relates to disease. And also looking at like, toxicology and, and understanding the idea that whereas we've been restricted to these animal models that are heavily inbred, you know, so that they're all essentially identical. And that's important for experimental reproducibility, but it doesn't approach the genetic diversity in the human population. And I think in this year, we've really realized with a lot of papers and all the papers that came before that this technology has gone beyond just an alternative source of cells that can make tissues, but a real platform for disease modeling, for understanding, and for developing new technologies and new approaches to treating disease outside of the traditional regenerative approaches. So it was a year that was 10 years worth of Yamanaka coming to fruition, I think, in 2016. Yeah. And like you said, being able to advance the platform, we had lots of research on organoids. So they're taking, you know, these induced pluripotent stem cells and making complex tissues for modeling disease, little mini brains and stuff. I mean, this is madness. This is like mad scientist kind of stuff, right? They're making everything out of these cells. It's pretty amazing. What's next? Was it the Chinese also who... They've actually created embryos. Yes. Little babies. <laughs> yes. You know? Well. They're, they're actually creating induced oocytes, right? Induced oocytes. Yes. We're going to come around to that story. That's crazy. That's right. They're making everything out of these cells. Yamanaka has reinvented the entire landscape. We've got a new means of getting the tissues and the, the cells that we need to move the field forward. Yeah, but we don't have to debate as much, like you said. So it's not no longer, okay, Are the, what are these oocytes being used for? Are we using embryonic stem cells? What are we using these cells for? Are we going to debate things like taking oocytes and cloning them? And we've moved on from Dolly the sheep. Right. And now we've got new debates that have come up like this last year, donations for babies with three genetic parents. Oh right? my gosh. Three parent babies. I, don't I personally like the name. I know it's a terrible name. In all the news, they always say a controversial technique. And you know what? Find that statement that it's controversial. Controversial. 
This year in Mexico, U.S. scientists created an embryo that was implanted into a mother who carried the genes for Lay syndrome, which affects the developing neural syndrome, leading to dead babies, which that's nobody likes that, right? So they fixed it by actually taking the nucleus from the mother's egg, inserting a donor's egg, and that has the nucleus removed. So you've got mother's nucleus, you've got donor mitochondria, and then you have the sperm of the father. I have no issues with this. But anyway, three parents, three parents, and supposedly a healthy baby. We don't know for sure, though. Yeah, I think all indications are that it's going to be a healthy baby. And I think we need to be really sensitive about this. These are real people. This is a baby that's going to be in the world, a human being, hopefully, with no complications. And the idea that we're attaching all these stigmas to a human being who just wanted to be born without Lee syndrome, for Christ's sake, Give these people doing this research a break. It's a good thing, I think, despite all the controversy. I think so, yeah. This is a good segue, too. You know, in the past, we wanted to get oocytes for doing SCNT, somatic cell nuclear transfer. That was the big thing. Oh, we need to get oocytes, oocytes. But now, you know, a lot of the oocyte donations with Yamanaka coming with IPS cells as an alternative to SCNT Mm -hmm. ES cells, You know, a lot of oocytes now maybe are being redirected toward this type of uh, therapeutic indication. Parents who are affected by mitochondrial disease and who would benefit from having a donor oocyte that was enucleated to provide healthy mitochondria that are going to carry this human being through life without being affected by mitochondrial disease. So oocytes Mm -hmm. are the limiting factor still. We still need oocytes. And as you alluded to earlier, another big discovery this year, just a couple months ago, was that we are now able, we, I say, I can't do it, but these (laughs) guys over there, my man over there who I've actually met and is a brilliant guy and very humble, in Japan, they've been able to generate oocytes from induced pluripotent stem cells as well as embryonic stem cells derived from the mouse. So I think this is a huge deal because it allows us to, you know, understand the process of how oocytes are generated from a pluripotent stem cell in vivo because this whole process was done in vitro right there in a dish, whereas in the past something similar has been done, but with the transplant in vivo is like a black box. But now we can see the whole thing happen right before our eyes. And I think a lot of people are saying, oh, great, we can generate oocytes. But I don't think a lot of people understand the convergence of multiple technologies between iPS cells, where we can get a genetically matched pluripotent mm-hmm. cell from a patient. We can then generate that into an oocyte, okay? So we can give oocytes that are genetic derivative of a patient. But the more important thing there is not just for infertile patients, but any patient affected by genetic disease. If you want to do a careful revision of that genetic alteration, aberration, it's unlikely you're just going to be able to shoot it into the oocytes pre-fertilization. You need to do a careful, careful and precise and corroborate the correction of that mutation, something that I think is only practical in cultured iPS cells. So to be able to generate oocytes from these cells now means you can take a patient cells, generate iPS cells, correct a genetic disease, and then generate oocytes from that patient so that the germline can be corrected and you can stop genetic disease in its tracks throughout generations, something that may have been in a family forever. You can just squash it, moving towards a perfect human race. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is the science fiction that we all talk about, right? Yeah. 
A little bit of fiction there, but... This moves away from natural selection to technological selection. Yeah, that's the danger there. It's a little bit ethically uh, precarious, but I'm I'm all for it. Yeah, Homo technologica. <laughs> have, we, have we moved on from Homo sapiens to uh, moving Let's beyond? be honest. If yeah. we learn anything in 2016, Homo sapiens, you know, maybe it's time to move on. Yeah. Well, moving on from creating oocytes from stem cells, we've also... This is very big news reported in science that we can now lock carbon dioxide away in the earth as stone. The caveat with this is that it took place in Iceland under very specific geologic conditions. And so it's likely that this could probably only happen in those specific geologic conditions, but it worked. I'll take it. And this is what we need to do moving forward as carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere as the uh, ocean's ability to uptake carbon dioxide decreases as we reach its sink ability, as its maximum sinkness, we're going to have to do something with the carbon dioxide. And we need engineering solutions like this one. And so if we're able to create carbonate materials, rock under the earth, then this is a big, big help that uh, it, it could really have a big impact in on the future. I like how it goes... Right to rock. rock. Huh? There's no like liquid. It's just the opposite of sublimation. Right. <laughs> I don't even know what that's called, but that's amazing. Only in Iceland, I'm sure. Well, you know, they're engineering the CO2 into rock and they're engineering disease out of adult patients. You know, we just talked about doing genetic correction in oocytes or in IPS cells to oocytes and squashing genetic disease forever <laughs> for a master it. race. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the master race notwithstanding, there are some people still kicking around here on Earth with disease and they're adults. And, you know, it's not too late for them either, as this study showed. In mice affected by Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. So... Much of the controversy surrounding this gene editing technology, you know, the CRISPR thing that's out there, centers on the ethics of doing a germline editing, you know, squashing the disease and the master race. So editing human embryos to connect to disease-causing mutations. But for certain disorders, it's not necessary to go into the germline. You may be able to achieve a therapeutic benefit by actually editing the faulty gene in just the somatic cells. So this is just people walking around with disease. If you can hit enough of the tissue that's affected by disease, you might be able to create a therapeutic benefit. So in proof-of-concept studies, Long et al., Nelson et al., and Tababordar et al., this is three groups, they use adeno-associated virus 9 to deliver CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system to young mice with a mutation in the gene coding for dystrophin, a muscle protein deficient in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So when they did this in the young patients, so granted, not adults, but still postnatal, the gene editing partially restored dystrophin protein expression in the skeletal and cardiac muscle mm -hmm. and improved skeletal muscle function. This was published in Science almost at the start of the year, but this is something I think is, is trickling into the clinic, not just this therapy, but a lot of therapies specifically in the hematopoietic system are now integrating this idea of trying to affect disease in adults. So I think we're moving out of this germline idea and we're, we're trying to solve disease in, in actual patients walking around using this CRISPR technology.
I imagine eventually in the future, it'll be a double pronged approach. You know, you, you, you want to treat the adults with, with the disorders so that they don't have the symptoms so that they can live long, productive, healthy lives. Right. And then you also want to fix the problem in the germline. So there'll probably be an eventual merging of the two lines of research. I mean, just to be able to do this, to be able to fix something in living organisms, that's amazing. <laughs> hey, we're just going to put this in your body and you're going to feel better <laughs> forever. The idea that it can affect so many of the somatic cells is what's so impressive to it's me. It's so impressive. An yeah. organ is made up of billions of cells. How does it get in there? I guess remains to be seen. Yeah. Biology. It's amazing. It just keeps going. And I hope it keeps going because you know what? Ugh, climate change. It's just causing all sorts of problems. It's really affecting sea ice. It's affecting temperatures on the earth. It's affecting sea levels. This year, we saw Arctic and Antarctic sea ice volumes fall to all-time lows. We had planetary temperatures spiking this year, 2015, hottest year on record. In October, November, December, we've seen Arctic temperatures rise up to 50 degrees above average, almost, you know, not being freezing anymore to the melting point. So basically, we don't have the growth of sea ice that we have had in previous years. There are still possibilities of the sea ice growing into 2017. But really, because the temperatures are so high, parts of the Arctic Ocean failed to refreeze this year. In the Antarctic, we have sea ice thawing faster than usual. And the amount of ice this autumn, 4 million square kilometers, is about the size of Western Europe, below the normal average. What? We lost Europe's <laughs> worth of ice? We lost Euro Western Europe's worth of ice, yeah. And the chance of this happening is about 1 in 100 billion of being a random event. This is not a random event. This is an event that has been caused by increasing temperatures. We're melting things. The Arctic passages are going to be open. I mean, countries are going crazy about this for shipping purposes, but this is a very serious issue here on the Earth, and it's going to affect humanity around the globe. One in a hundred billion chance of being random, but somehow, you know, the incoming uh, administration believes in those long odds. So they must feel lucky. <laughs> Do you feel lucky, punk? I'm not feeling lucky. I'm no. feeling very warm, frankly. Very warm. Well, you know, in, in a future where there's no Arctic ice, I think we're going to have to make some serious adjustments. And this is maybe a parlay. You know, the Duchenne's thing, they're trying to cure disease in, in postnatal, no trying to germline editing. But I think we're going to have to go past that and just go on with some serious human engineering to make our species adjust to the new world we're going to be living in right for goodness sake it doesn't look good but um you know before we get there we're going to have to to begin with some small things and i think we're moving towards it now this is i think another important year for crispr in terms of this going into humans i think when you know it wasn't very long just a handful of years ago that crispr tailings all these technologies were introduced the idea that they'd be in clinical trials before the decade i think was maybe a bit of a long shot but 
Needless to say, CRISPR, the revolutionary gene editing tool that promises to cure illnesses and solve environmental calamities. Hello. Maybe we should look closer at that. It took a major step forward this year when a team of Chinese scientists used it to treat a human patient for the first time. So this was a patient suffering from a very aggressive form of lung cancer, which I think, you know, kind of eased the bioethical issues of using this experimental therapy. Yeah, she, a terminal patient, right? Yes, a terminal yeah. patient. I think, you know, people like to make jokes, of, ah, in China, they just take prisoners and they do whatever they want. But that's not at all true. They do have regulatory apparatus there to ensure that things are done ethically and safely, and this is no different. Um, this patient, end-stage lung cancer, they took his immune cells out, and they used CRISPR to knock out the gene that the lung cancer was exploiting to spread even faster. And then they reintroduced these kind of galvanized cells back into the patient, hoping that they would be resistant and help the patient to defeat cancer, you know, or at least increase the longevity so you'd have that reserve of cells that couldn't be affected and destroyed by the cancer. And although the, the results of the trial they haven't been disclosed, I think this is a very important first-of-its-kind study where you're, you're introducing cells that have been engineered as such back into a patient. At the very least, they should give us some idea of the safety. I mean, granted, this patient will probably succumb to their disease, but we may get some interesting uh, results back and some data that may help patients that could finally beat their disease. There's still a lot of uncertainty. Of course, CRISPR is a very new technology, and there's all these patent battles around if yeah. it, who's going to get paid. CRISPR is going to be like the internet someday. Come on. It's going to be just a basic technological right. <laughs> I hope so. But there's definitely going to be, you know, a Bill Gates out there, and yeah. I think everyone's fighting to be at the top of that mountain. But you're right, I think. How can you patent something that's just such a basic idea. It's biology. Yeah. But, you know, needless to say, using this technology to alter one's genetic code, it's no longer science fiction. Yeah, I think, you know, the CRISPR addition to this, and there was also the CAR-T trials for leukemia, you know, it's just looking at different ways to modify the immune cells to help the body battle, in the case of cancer, battle itself. But I think, you know, these research directions and clinical research directions are so important. We're going to find out so much. But if, you know, if they don't work, if our planet continues to die, <laughs> or maybe if they do start working and we can modify ourselves even further, you know, maybe genetic modifications will help us get beyond our own solar system. We may need to. Yeah. I mean, we might have to be able to survive 70,000 years to reach a new planet. Yikes. Yeah, well, we discovered this year a new planet, 1.3 times the mass of Earth, also thought to be a rocky planet orbiting the nearest star to our sun, called Proxima b. This little planet lives within the habitable zone of the star Proxima Centauri. So if it has water, it could be liquid water. It could be could also be super hot and uninhabitable and could be not worth it. But it has become a point of interest for astronomers and those who wish to move forward on interstellar travel. And so telescopes are being pointed in its direction. We are potentially going to be sending robotic missions. There's the Breakthrough Endeavor this year, which is wanting to send little tiny robots to another star. They might be point sending them to Proxima b. I mean, this is the nearest star to the sun, which is so exciting. 
this is our nearest neighbor. Although, yes, it's 70,000 years away (laughs) by, you know, based on our spacecraft today, it's still 4.2 light years away. If we could get things working to get there faster, you know, maybe we could actually reach it. Maybe we could send a mission there. Maybe we could send people there. I don't know. It's just really cool to find an Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone around its star really close to us, right next door. Yeah, right next door. I mean, what does that mean? That would probably suggest that if you take a star, there's probably going to be a planet around it, right, that's in the habitable zone. All things being equal, if our nearest one has it, I think that uh, bodes well for other near stars that are maybe only 120,000 years away, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. It's uh, also quite close. I don't know. But, you know, needless to say, 70,000 years, be it our... 4.3 light years. However, we're going to get there. We're going to have to work together. The scientific community is going to have to come together on some kind of like, kind of like the Apollo type thing, you know? We're going to need to find and consolidate the finest minds and put them together towards a common goal, like a new space race. I don't know. In the past few years, I'm in science. You're in science, Kiki. You know, it's tough. People hate each other in science. They fight each other. They're all fighting for this shrinking pot of funding. And the battles are so hard fought because there's so little to lose. Yeah. But I have an encouraging story. It's actually a bit of a disappointing story, but I think encouraging in terms of the scientific community coming together. So just recently, this major stem cell discovery was made a couple years ago, was retracted. Okay, It was one of the highest profile researchers in diabetes, Doug Mountain. He retracted a paper that was once heralded as a breakthrough following multiple failed attempts to reproduce its headline-grabbing results. So this retraction ends three years of debate over whether discovery by Doug Mountain and the lead author at Harvard University was indeed a major advance in the field of diabetes. Okay, And the new conclusions from the authors are now conclusively backing away from their earlier conclusions. So the initial result that there was this uh, hormone found in the liver that seemed to spur the production of insulin-producing cells in mice. This hormone, which is called beta-trophin, it was heralded as like a new way to fight diabetes with a single compound. The paper was published in Cell. It drew international attention, as you might suggest. But, you know, in subsequent studies, other researchers from not necessarily competing groups, but independent groups, they found that the hormone had no effect on insulin production. And to his credit and their credit, Mountain's team, they followed up a result in response to that showing that they kind of agreed that their newest results cast some doubt. And then earlier this year, in a group effort, Mountain teamed up with researchers from Baylor College of Medicine and McNair Medical Institute, and they pretty much put together a series of experiments that concluded decisively and published a strong refutation of their initial idea that beta-trophin can mobilize a spike in insulin production. So it's a disappointment, like any retraction, but the gradual teardown of this beta-trophin hypothesis, I think, illustrates how scientists can, and this is to quote Doug Mountain, quote, how scientists can work together when they disagree and come together to move the field forward. The history of science shows it is not a linear path, he added. So I, I give... Doug Mountain, a lot of credit for this. He had a result. It was contentious. It was, you know, a big deal. 
he took the time to, I think, review it, respond to the criticism, and ultimately agreed with those criticisms and refuted the results, and now we can all move on to a more promising line of research. So I think this is an indication, hopefully, although I doubt it, that maybe in 2017 we'll all start working together and we won't be casting any of our you know, precious research off on blind alleys by having uh, results that may or may not be you know, necessarily as impactful as they seem. We can prove them. Yeah, and I think this is also a good story about the process of science itself and how scientists don't have to be stuck to the results that they get and that they need to listen not just to the work that comes out of their own lab, but to the work that does come out of others that either corroborates or refutes the evidence that they've come up with. I mean, the fact that Melton didn't stick to his guns and say, we were right, we were right, you know, he went out and he he listened, he read the papers and he went, okay, let's work on this together and see if we really did get it right or wrong. And when they realized it was wrong, he stepped up and he said, we got it wrong. For whatever reason, our lab, the first experiment, we got a certain result, but it was not correct. And now we know for sure. And he stepped up. And I think as a scientist, that's a hard thing to do. Very hard thing to you do. Know, it's just I, I commend him. Yeah. Step up, scientists. Um, And in a final story that is a story also of collaboration and hard work, you know, many times people have hypotheses and they are shot down by research. But every once in a while, hypotheses are supported. And in the field of physics, this year we had a very big discovery, gravitational waves. They were predicted for decades by Einstein's theory of general relativity. And it was really only this year. I mean, during the fall of 2015, we kind of heard little squeaks that they may have, physicists may have discovered something to do with gravitational waves. But it it was only 2016, January of last year, that they reported that they discovered, researchers discovered, ripples in the fabric of space-time. Wow. Is that a good thing? I'm scared of ripples in the fabric of space time. No, it's a great thing. I mean, (laughs) you know, supporting another prediction of Einstein's theory of general relativity with actual observational experimental evidence, it supports this whole view of our universe and how things work in it. And so it's another piece of evidence really supporting the way that we perceive things and how we perceive our universe to work. And so what they found, this LIGO detector, they have an array, these detectors that are able to detect like the minuscule movement of a proton vibrating from these ripples of giant black holes colliding together to create super giant black holes. And this is what they reported on last January, were two massive black holes colliding together, creating something like 63 solar mass black hole in their collision, but creating these ripples, kind of like throwing a rock in a pond, the ripples Mm -hmm. on the surface of the water. That's what they detected with this LIGO array. The detector detected these things, that this collision that occurred 1.3 billion years ago. Wow. 
And then they did it again. In June, they reported a second collision event from two smaller black holes colliding together. And then this year in November, they went through a whole increase in power. So they're probably going to start reporting more black hole collision events. There's an Italian detector that's going to go online. There's another detector that's going to go online in India. And altogether, I mean, we can potentially expect to hear about, they could be reporting collision events about once a day when this detector is fully online and has its full resolution of the universe. We can expect some very exciting information about how black holes work and also just about the evolution of our universe. Going to be exciting 2017. Einstein had it right. Am I right? Einstein yep. had it right, as usual. As... In 2017, <laughs> Einstein will have it right again. I mean, the guy, he knew what he was talking about, didn't he? He did. And you know what? We have it right, right here. Big year in science. We had it right. <laughs> That's right. Every couple of weeks, we got it right for you guys. And we had a lot of fun. I hope you guys had fun this year, too. This was a great roundup looking back at 2016. Hope you enjoyed all these stories. Remember that links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, this can all be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. All right. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right. So our guest today is our very own Dalen James. Dalen is an assistant professor of stem cell biology in obstetrics and gynecology. He's stem cell biology director and reproductive endocrinology laboratory manager at the Tri-Institutional Stem Cell Derivation Laboratory at Weill Cornell Medical College. And I'm the co-host of the Stem Cell Podcast. And, hey, welcome to the show, Dalen. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Okay, our audience kind of knows you a little, right? You've been hosting this with me for almost the last year, and so they've gotten to know you just a little bit, but... We're always talking about other people's science. We're talking about what other people are doing. And so people just know kind of when you get excited about stuff. <laughs> yeah, I get excited about a lot of things. But I have to sit here and talk about all these other people's amazing research. And secretly, I'm just sitting here jealous, envious, and I want to talk about me a little bit. So I arranged to have myself on the show. I pulled a few strings. I talked to the producers. And so today it's all about me, me, me. All right. First question, please. <laughs> and to clear that up, he was actually pretty reticent about being interviewed. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think anyone really likes talking about themselves. And when you've talked to enough scientists, you realize, like I have, I've talked to a few scientists, you realize that they're mostly weird people and there's all kinds of awkwardness. Yeah. And, you know, a lifetime of conversations with scientists, I'm a bit traumatized by some of those interactions. So. Every time I get out here on the radio, I feel like it's, uh, you know, I'm really risking a lot, especially as you know, Kiki, I can be a bit of a loose cannon. But nevertheless, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I can also be responsible yeah. sometimes. <laughs> but you're always interesting. So let's find out what you're interested in. What is the focus of your lab? What are you working on? What do you do? So I'll give you a little context. I don't want to go on too long, but I'll give you a little context. So I started, you know, studying um, frog embryos. I loved 
the idea that you could go from an egg, a fertilized egg, to a free swimming tadpole in like a day and a half, pretty much. And you could see it happening right before your eyes because they're in these clear eggs, you know, and in pond water. So unlike human development, which happens in the uterus and black box or even cell culture where you need this incubator and 5% uh, CO2 and 37 degrees, you can just dump these tadpole eggs in water and then watch them develop. And in grad school with Ali Brivan Lu at Rockefeller University, this is what I did. The first years there, I just looked at these frog embryos. Amazing stuff. You got to see these videos. But, you know, what it drew me to as Ali seamlessly went into human embryology because that was his initial focus. And I was lucky. I came up at a time where, as everyone before had been looking towards systems and models and other animals, I came into the field at a time when it really became possible to look at human development using in vitro model of human embryonic stem cells. So I was lucky to have that. I got interested in just how they work while I was in Ali's lab. And then in my postdoc, I got focused on how we could use them to make tissues. Specifically, I was focused on endothelial cells or blood vessel cells. And I did a few studies trying to understand how embryonic stem cells become blood vessels, how they become that lineage, what governs the molecular biology of endothelial cell identity, how we can try and use them to generate new vessels in vivo, how the cells kind of transition to other cell types. People don't know, but all the blood cells, some people know, but a lot of people don't know, all the blood cells in your body, they come from endothelium. So I was really fixated on endothelium. And then in my initial faculty post, I had migrated from endothelium to blood endothelium, this hemogenic endothelium and hematopoiesis, and then into cardiac and cardiovascular, the heart and the endothelium in the heart, which is what I'm focused on now. And because my appointment was in OB, obstetrics and gynecology, I also peeled off a bit of my research program to fertility. I'll tell you in more detail maybe about those projects, but the bottom line is my lab is focused on fertility and cardiovascular disease, which is such a weird combination. I don't think you'll find another lab that is focused on that. You know, it's just how I landed. It's just where I landed. I kind of had to put aside my research arc, not put it aside, but maybe integrate a fertility element into it. And is that because that's where your appointment is? You're like, okay, we're in obstetrics and gynecology. We're going to do fertility. Are your lines of research separate or are they integrated? What are you doing? That's a good question. So to answer the first part of the question, I love my chief. He's super supportive. And it wasn't hard to, uh, for him to convince me, but this was the deal. I joined the department on the condition that I would dedicate some of my research to fertility. And it wasn't hard because I've always loved embryology. It was kind of a way for me to get back into, I guess, pre-embryology. I had worked closely with the IVF clinic here where I am now, derive the initial stem cell lines. My chief now, Zev Rosenwax, he actually gave, provided the donated blastocyst lines that we derived the first ESL lines in New York using. So I had a close relationship with him. It was easy to get into his department. And to answer your second question, yes, I wanted to integrate the project so that they could coexist, one thing, but also I think they dovetail really well. And particularly, the project that I'm focused on in fertility, one of them is fertility preservation. So fertility preservation is the practice of maintaining a male or female's reproductive options in the face of 
cancer and chemotherapy. So most people know, but there's not that much focus on the fact that when you have cancer, you get chemo, and one of the major sequelae of, of chemo or radiation for that matter is the gonadotoxicity. You burn out all your eggs if you're a woman, and you know, women are born with all the eggs, supposedly, and I believe that they're born with all or most of the eggs that they'll ever have. When you have patients that undergo chemotherapy, they're really reducing their chance of having a baby. And, you know, the good news in the modern era is that we're doing really, really well at curing cancer, especially childhood cancers. And the unfortunate reality, and it's been getting more attention recently, I remember reading this really compelling and gut-wrenching piece by a young woman who was a cancer survivor. And what she talked about, which really grabbed me by the heart, was the fact that she was prematurely, she was in her 20s and she was living the life of someone who was much older. She was suffering from all these complications of her chemo, namely the premature ovarian failure as a result of the gonadotoxicity of the chemo that kind of divorced her from the experience of her peers. So she survived cancer only to lose a huge part of her quality of life. A huge facet of her adulthood died with that cancer, even though she survived. And I think now there's an increasing focus on how we can help, especially childhood survivors of cancer. And the way I try to do that is using endothelium to revitalize ovarian tissue. Put it short, before the patient goes in for chemo, We'll take one of her ovaries out. I focus on female patients. We take out one of her ovaries, the whole ovary, and we slice and dice it up into little strips, and we cryopreserve it. The patient undergoes chemotherapy or radiation, whatever it is, which presumably is destroying her remaining ovary. When that patient hopefully is in remission and reaches adulthood, we can transplant that ovary back into the patient. And then doing classical like hormonal hyperstimulation like IVF, you can then generate or cause that reimplanted tissue to generate developing oocytes, extract those oocytes out, fertilize them in a dish, put them back into the patient's uterus, which isn't compromised by chemotherapy, and they have a baby by pretty much classical IVF. That's the approach. And the problem has been that when you put the tissue back in, it doesn't survive because when you cut it out and put it back in, the vessels have to reattach. And while all that tox, you know, that ischemic and low oxygen hypoxic influences are happening, the tissue's dying. So our move is to co-transplant endothelial cells that we generate from IPS cells that are from that same patient. So a patient matched endothelium, we co-transplant it, it hooks up the vessels more quickly, accelerates the reperfusion of that tissue, the tissue survives, to a greater degree, and we get better outcomes, more eggs, more embryos, and better chance for this patient to have a baby. And do you have to transplant to be able to get the eggs? Because you've taken the ovary out and cryopreserved it. Can you just take that cryopreserved ovary and, in a dish, stimulate it and get eggs for IVF later? Or do you have to do this transplantation? Is it better? I mean, as usual, Kiki, I've never been on this side of an interview with you, but it's like you're in my brain. Yes, yes. The idea would be to not transplant at all, because remember, a lot of these patients have leukemia. So you're taking out tissue that's probably infiltrated with leukemic cells. And a big thing now is, oh, well, you're going to be the patients in remission. You're giving them leukemia. Putting it back. You know, it has been the case in some of these patients, a tragic case 
not tragic because the patient survived, but you know, you don't even have to transplant these tissue back into the where the ovary was. You can transplant it under your arm. In the forearm, you could transplant it subcutaneously, and then it'll like pop up like a blister as the egg develops and increases, and then you stick a needle and suck out the egg through your forearm. So it's called heterotopic. Seriously? This is not... (laughs) Yes. I would not mess around. You got eggs in your arm. I've never heard of this before. Oh, well, that's why I'm here, babe. I'm here to tell you about it. You want eggs in your arm? I will hook you up. Although we don't want to have to take out your ovary to do that. God forbid. I need to pass on that. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of an aside. But in a tragic case where it wasn't so tragic, the outcome was good, but they transplanted the patients back into the abdomen, just, you know, under some muscle in the abdomen. And this was a patient who had granulosa cell tumor, which is why she underwent the whole chemo in the first place. They took out the tissue, and then they put it back in. Suddenly, she had full descent. After she had two babies by this protocol, by the way, was able to have twin babies. But then after, or maybe during, while the babies were in utero, she had a relapse of the granulosa cell tumor. No coincidence. It was in her abdomen, right where the tissue was transplanted. So you worry about reintroducing the tumor. And in the case of leukemia, it's much more high likelihood. So what the real move would be if you could just skip the whole tissue part and isolate the little baby follicles where the eggs begin and transplant those. And people have been trying to do that, but they haven't really gotten so far. Getting the follicles from their quiescent state that they live most of your life in, getting them started seems to be the tough part. Once you get the ball rolling, you can take the follicles out and they can undergo this thing called in vitro maturation, where they mature in vitro and then they can even undergo IVF based on those. But to get them started is the key. And there's only a handful of follicles in any piece of tissue that have started the ball rolling. 99% of them are in this quiescent reserved state. So yes, ideally we would skip the tissue part and my whole research program would be totally dispensed with. Thank you very much, Kiki. Okay, there you go. But good for me and my funding source. Uh, we're not quite there yet, although that's one of the things we're working on. I think everything in biology is moving towards this idea of deconstructing. You know, take it outside of the niche. But ironically, and I think it's coming becoming clear, if it hasn't been clear forever, that the niche is integral to the organ, you know, and whatever you're looking at, the niche support is really an important part. So reconstructing that niche, I think, niche is going to be the challenge moving forward. Yeah, getting all of the particular components that are important. Yeah, and it's a moving target, Kiki. I mean, nobody, maybe if you could even identify what they are, it's the combination, it's the series, the temporal, spatial aspect. Biology is such a mess. It's amazing that it works at all. <laughs> the miracle of life, according to Dalen James. The miracle of life. Biology is a mess. mess. <laughs> it's amazing it works. <laughs> yeah, you can quote me. I know. Yeah, well, I mean, there is the idea, like in neuroscience also, that, you know, biology that of our brain is that, what, I think it was Gary Marcus came out with a book about the kludge that basically it's all been kludged together through evolution. And just over time, all kind of just, okay, this works here. That doesn't work there. We're going to put this bit on here. And it all all somehow works together. Yes, agree. It's a patchwork, a horrid, horrendous quilt. But actually, amazingly, you know, these things come together with all the diversity. Why is biology so beautiful? That would be my question. Because when you think of it like that, with all the patchwork and all the abortive mutants 
I guess the ugly ones don't survive, but why is, is there, most things I would say in biology are pretty like good looking, wouldn't you say? Sometimes even elegant. It's the symmetry of things, you know, the fact that so much of life is bilaterally symmetric, so much of cellular function, it's this pathway that we follow these signaling pathways in metabolism. There are all these things that just neatly work together. It's amazing. I'm coming to a hypothesis here. I'm going to bet that ugly vertebrates or ugly animals, period, have a shorter evolutionary line. That's what I'm getting out there. Okay. Ugliness is not supported by evolution. (laughs) Well, and you know, ugliness is in the eye of the beholder. So, okay, fair (laughs) enough. When you go to the zoo and you see some of those animals, you know, something, oh, it's so cute. Even that hairless looking thing. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I'm thinking about it, there's some really ugly, a lot of dogs I see, I think, are hideous. I've heard you say things like this before. <laughs> Moving away from dogs, back to uh, cardiac endothelium. Okay. So all right. we've talked a bit about the reproductive side of your work. What are you doing with cardiac epithelia? All right. That's all you had to do. I can to start me talking. Go for it. So the other thing that I really, really care about, because I think I go for big impact probably like all my grant reviewers would say, I'm overambitious. And they're right. But, you know, you got to start big and I think pare down from your goals. So I look at what's the big killer, the heart. The heart's such a killer. You know, I die every day. My heart is broken every time I look at my kids and their sweet little faces. But people are actually dying out there. And when they don't die from cardiac arrest or stroke or any other kind of ischemic cardiac insult, their lives are ruined by it. So I think it's a very important disease, cardiovascular disease generally, but specifically, you know, congestive heart failure as a complication from myocardial infarct. You know, you have a heart attack, all your muscle tissue dies in those few moments where you lose oxygen perfusion and then it doesn't come back. You save the person, but the heart is dead in large part and it gets bigger and bigger as the rest of the heart tries to grow to compensate for that dead weight. The scar, which is doing nothing, you know, typically you have a heart attack, you have this inflammatory response where you get immune infiltration and the proliferation of these myofibroblasts are called, which are like pretty much spackle. If you're thinking about it in terms of fixing a house, you got a nice wall with all kinds of electrical and plumbing components in there. You take a sledgehammer, you break through it, and then you just spackle it up and you let flooding start. It doesn't work. It's not a long-term solution. It's a patch. Okay, and what the heart's doing in those few moments, it's patching so that it can maintain the vital function of beating and distributing blood to the rest of the body. So that's the priority in development. And even in the first week after birth in a mouse, you can cut out the whole apex of the heart, a big chunk of tissue, and it'll heal. It'll heal and form normal heart tissue, the way you have like digit reformation. This is an amazing thing. When you think about how that could happen in an adult, it doesn't happen. You cut the apex, you just get a scar. That patient is going to die not long. So how does this work? We also don't have digit reformation as adults As as it turns out, (laughs) as many carpenters could tell you, unfortunately. You know, I think that the memory of these mechanisms is there. If not conserved in our species, who knows if a one-week-old baby cut out a piece of the heart and it would regrow. But I think it would. And I think that the memory of these things can be reinforced in the adult. So what I'm working on in cardiac 
is how we can mobilize the heart tissue to instead of forming that myofibroblast, instead of forming that patch, how can we educate the progenitor cells that usually do that? How can we say, guys, why don't you go to a more constructive fate? Why don't you become endothelium? Endothelium that's not only going to lead to reperfusion and reformation of the vessels, but is also, I think, going to kind of spit out these little growth factors and cues that are going to cause the normal myocardium, the muscle, the healthy part of the tissue of the heart to regrow and to regrow in a way that's functional. The idea that we have is that we can redirect cell fate infarcted heart. And the model that we're using in order to illustrate the mechanisms of that is embryonic stem cells, human embryonic stem cells, and mouse embryos. We're looking at how the same cells in an embryonic heart make their choices between fibroblast or myocardium or endothelium. And we're trying to understand what the signal inputs are. And what I'm focused on now is a particular pathway that I'm not going to share because it's in review, but probably most people will know it and guess if they know their cardiac. But we're focused on this pathway and how regulating this pathway can redirect cardiac progenitor cells toward endothelium. And we're going to try and move that after this paper is out into an adult model where we induce heart attack and then we flood the heart with these same factors that seem to redirect to endothelial fate and development and see if we can get more constructive healing of the heart. So that's that. That'd be great. I mean, it's one of the questions we know that in development, there's as you know, at a certain point, there are instructions that turn off the developmental genes. So these genes that allow the reconstruction, that allow the this continuous regrowth, right? You know, at a certain point, it's like, okay, the heart's done. Let's turn off these genes. We don't need to remodel anymore. And that's part of why they don't reform. So if you turn them back on again, if you put them back in, is there a concern about tumor formation? Can't, you know, this is the big problem in the stem cell world, right? Yeah, I mean, it is a major issue anytime we're talking about augmenting and trying to restore embryonic kind of identity or kind of cell behavior. Although my comfort with the heart, I would say, is that, you know what, you never see heart tumors, maybe in extremely rare cases. But I think it's a system that's built to preclude or evolutionary we've arrived. And there's a lot of cellular mechanisms why this is, you know, there's not a lot of mitosis in the heart. There are these multinucleates and cishal uh, myocardial and the muscle cells themselves are not proliferative by definition with the multiple, the syncytia and the multiple nuclei. But, you know, the cellular behaviors explain so much of it, but I think that the molecular identity of the cells and perhaps some safeguards are in place that may preclude a kind of aberrant tumorigenic type growth in the heart. I'm comfortable with reactivating embryologic pathways in the heart, although I would never be comfortable using transcription factors and genetic engineering and, you know, lenti or whatever type of genetic manipulation in an adult heart. I would never be comfortable with that for the risk of unknown unknowns. But I am comfortable with tweaking signaling pathways, external cell inputs. Inputs that aren't going to change the DNA of the cell, they may have some proliferative influence or kind of dampen proliferation, whatever it may be, but there are signals that have a precedent in biology generally, but also in cardiac physiology. The heart has seen these signals before, and, you know, things in the body, they see all kinds of signals throughout their lifetime. So 
I'm not so worried about signaling factors, although genetic engineering, you know, transcription factors, I do have some fears about oncogenic transformation or other similar type concerns. Yeah, as long as you're working in mice, it's not yeah. too big a deal. Yeah. Then you're just going, oh, look what happened. <laughs> we <laughs> yeah, do this in an adult person. Then it's cool, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe we could. some people would serve for a little bit of bigger hearts. We could get some positive transformation of some Scrooge-like hearts. <laughs> right, they grew three sizes. <laughs> so do you think in your research, are you more driven by just answering questions or are you driven by wanting to help people with disease? I would say I don't want to get cynical. But it's changed. <laughs> you you are cynical. So, yeah. no. <laughs> yes, I don't want to be myself. But in that I am myself. I'll say that I when I started in science and where I am in science now are very different things, as you might expect. What motivates me now is the fact that, well, a big part of my motivation is obviously professional ambition and my family and my responsibilities. But, you know, on the more positive side of that, that's it for my cynicism, Kiki, you'll be glad to hear. On the positive side of that, yes, I would say at this stage in my career, I'm really invested in the stories I've built. I've come along a track. I've like a answered a bunch of questions in series that are connected in this kind of web of curiosity. And I'm filling in, you know, I'm filling in. And so I'm really married to what I've filled in. And I think that is a positive and negative element because you kind of get, you know, siloed up that way. And a great thing about shifting my focus to the fertility preservation angle is that it opened up these new horizons. It introduced me to a whole new group of specialists and people who now have fed back and synergized on my other research program and informed my cardiac research program. So that's been a really positive benefit. When I was young, and that's the greatest time to be in science, I think, Kiki, when you're young, there's no reason other than it's the more interesting of the things in front of you. Why you do anything? It's like, because oh, that's the coolest. And I remember when I started in science, I loved my rotation project and joined Ali's lab. I'll tell you why. is because we made tadpoles that had two heads. We made these <laughs> duplicated axis tadpoles. And I was like, forget it. This is it. We're doing some Frankenstein Moreau stuff here. Right. I'm in. And that's not a good reason. You know, it's nobody's going to give me many plaudits for doing science because it's cool. But I think the key is what it was. It was fascinating for me. And that drew me in. And, you know, ever since it's just been one thing after the other. And I think most scientists, especially at this stage, would tell you that what informs their future science is their, the science that led to that and the questions that emerged from answering the one. You know, that's the cliche. You answer one question, you get three more. What about your mentors? Were they super influential in these directions? My mentors, super influential in that they were both Iranian. I don't know what it is about me. I was very blessed, I would say. But most people would say I had an interesting, I don't want to say cursed, because I wasn't. It was amazing. But, and I also want to make a sweeping generalization because I don't know that many people from Iran. But these two guys were real crazy people. In different ways, in different ways. <laughs> Ali Brivanli, who's my man. I love both these guys. So anything I say should be qualified. And if you're listening to this podcast, Ali or Shaheen, I don't want to get any heat on this because I've had enough out of you guys. Ali was, he had this amazing uh, gift of synthesis and articulation of science, and he could get anyone excited about it. And that's 
what I think the greatest influence he had on me, not to mention that he created my whole foundation scientifically, but that goes without saying. And Shaheen, his craziness and unbridled craziness and lack of sleeping, which led to more craziness, made me like understand what real passion is. And I guess, you know, set some boundaries for me that I wouldn't want to approach. I kind of knew what maybe crazy, crazy was. And so I only wanted to approach crazy. But also, you know, I realized that in science with Shane, I realized you got to reinvent yourself constantly and move into new fields and take advantage of the technology because that's what will continue to grow and maybe add new dimensions to your own maybe a little bit, let's say, I don't know, sometimes you can reach a level of uh, stagnation. So if you can integrate some new technology, maybe it causes a spark. I, I learned that from him. You know, mentorship's a huge thing in science. It's a huge thing. My one qualm about mentorship is that it stops once you become independent. And all these research institutes, there's a big idea and theory of mentorship from senior investigators to the junior investigators. But I think it, it needs a lot of revision. I think that the nature of the funding apparatus as it is, it's, there's not much incentive for seasoned senior investigators to really carry along their junior competitors, is all you can really tell them. So my unfortunate experience has been that the mentorship has fallen off a cliff and I'm just kind of in space. But I don't think that's me alone. I think that's just what it is to be a young scientist these days. Do you think that collaboration or, you know, working with other young scientists, sometimes the senior scientists as well, do you think that kind of picks up some of the slack? Yeah, I think that's huge. I think if you can create a group of young researchers that are all, you know, using new tech and are, are have new ideas and can reinforce each other and provide, you know, technical support, also even like, you know, reagent support and all that stuff, but maybe even referring human resources to each other. I think that's important. And of course, collaboration with young researchers, I think is important to build your posse, so to speak. But the best collaborations I have. Do you have a good science posse? <laughs> no, my posse is pretty weak. We're not very hard to use the street parlance. We're a soft posse. But I mean, come on, we're scientists, flimsy nerds. You know, the best collaborations, I'm sure, is because they, it is a, a mentorship of mutual benefit. Is if you can collaborate with a seasoned investigator, senior investigator, who has all the funding, who has all the papers, and you can find something in your repertoire of skills that is useful to them, that's a boon. Because they're going to be invested in your collaboration because it serves them as well as you. And then they kind of have to talk to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've got something you want. So you mentioned the new technology. Like, is there any new technology that you're looking at that you're just like, I'm so excited about getting to use this? Yeah, well, you know, I, I like everyone else. This whole sequencing at single cell resolution to me is, I think, is really important for me. It's important for my cardiac project because I'm looking at all these cells that, well, I would say generally. What most people are interested in this field for is because we appreciate milestones. I think it's the way our lizard brains think. There's like, oh, you're an embryonic stem cell, then you're a mesoderm, then you're this, then you're that. And there's these discrete milestones, whereas really in biology, everything is at some, you know, we're talking like uh, integrals. Do you remember 
integrals where it's all like there's this infinitesimal slice and you're adding that's the limits. how it is yeah the limits we're talking about limits every cell is probably at a unique stage of all the billions are there two cells that are exactly alike at the same place i don't know maybe but i would say that at the very least the heterogeneity especially during development in these complex organs is really much more i think it's it hasn't been appreciated and maybe is now just being appreciated to the degree it should and so I've been into this new approach called DropSeq, where you take like a bunch of cells, not a ton, you give them like thousands of cells, and each cell is encapsulated in like a little agarose bead with enzymes and reagents that do the whole amplification. They do all the steps that you do for a group of cells for RNA sequencing. You know, you make a library and da 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 You run it through the machine, it spits out a bunch of results. It does that iteratively for thousands of cells, each in a single droplet. And it barcodes them so they can all be separated on the alignment. So each cell individually. Each cell. So it's a high throughput way of taking a population and getting individual seek results with, you know, limited resolution. We're not talking about global coverage here like you would get in a lot of RNA input. But you get really important results. And what they're telling me in my study is that all the cells grown in different conditions, how many of them are poised, whether their transcriptional hierarchy or landscape is poised to become either endothelium or fibroblast. And I have conditions that I know enrich for those fates. And what I can then see is what are the transcripts? What are the genes that are expressed in that context? What is the constellation of factors that make a cell make a certain decision? And it's never one thing. If it is one master thing, that master thing regulates a panoply of little minions to get the desired effect. So it's really important to, I think, see this in populations and kind of dynamically. When you see it in thousands of cells, you're seeing each of them at maybe discrete milestones, and you can create a kind of temporal, I think, idea. You can get an idea of the hierarchy of decision-making in time and in kind of in a transcriptional landscape. So drop-seek. That's my new tech, Kiki. Tell your friends. <laughs> All right. I'll tell everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to tell people about what you do, about yourself? I think that I'm a pretty boring guy, so I don't want to talk about myself anymore. But I do want to say that I think what I've come to, I've come to appreciate science, I think, when I went through a stage of maybe bitterness, anxiety, stress, and worried about career and all that, I have to say it's really, really wonderful to be in science. I would recommend it for any young person. Don't be a doctor. There's enough doctors. If you really want to be a doctor, be a doctor. But if you just want to be a doctor because that's what you're supposed to do, think about science. Science is so awesome. And science is only becoming a more and more important part of our future. I think scientists are starting to get some serious cred. And you can tell because it's so much more competitive now. And it's hard to compete when everyone wants to be in finance or everyone wants to be, you know, all the great things in the American dream. But we're not being competitive because there's not enough emphasis. Forget about the money. Be rich in knowledge. Be smart. Do the right thing. Join my lab. Make me rich. <laughs> So you're looking for grad students and postdocs. Is yes. that what you're trying to that say? Was a little plug. Inspirational <laughs> on the one hand, and at the back end, join my lab. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. 
Dalen, it's been really great talking with you about your work. I'm glad we got a chance to do this. I'm glad we did too. And you know, you're going to be on the spot next, Kiki. Oh, I'm going to make the kaha sucker. <laughs> I'm not going to wait till next year either. I'm not going to wait. Come you're on. Have to come back at me. Oh, and I'm going to ask you some <laughs> tough questions. It's going to be all about dogs, actually. Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> even know what to say. Dogs. I had some when I was a child. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, Kiki, why do you care about dogs at all? <laughs> Explain yourself. I don't know. They're nice, soft, fluffy. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll leave that interrogation I'll, I'll, to the I got to think about these things. At least six months to ponder <laughs> the answers. I'll give you three. I'll give you three months. Oh, man. Well, thanks for having me, Kiki. Thanks for being gentle. It's it's always nice to talk to you and our audience. I hope yeah. that we found something interesting for this 2016 in review episode. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. 2016. It's been good. It's been good, right? It could have been better. And this was a wonderful interview. It was great to have a good conversation with you about your work, as I said. But, you know, now it's time for our rant, right? The Stem Cell Podcast rant. This is what we do. We complain about things. Yeah, but I'm feeling so high from that interview. I'm feeling so positive, and it's a new year. I want to move away. It's a new I you. I want to get away from this. We're not <laughs> doing a rant. We're doing an anti-rant. We're doing a positive rant. I call it the pent. I want you to picture a dog excited, panting, enthusiastically. <laughs> Enthusiastic dog. <laughs> okay, and so I wanna, I'm inviting you. What's good? I mean, this should be a breeze for you. You're Mrs. Sunshine over there. Tell me, what are we coming away from 2016 feeling good about? I'm excited that 2016 is over. Oh. <laughs> That's making me feel good just on its own. Relief. <laughs> 2017, it's like the Alka-Seltzer for your 2016 <laughs> hangover. <Yeah. laughs> that would, you know, Alka-Seltzer, if they were smart, they would put that out on TV right now. But, you know, I mean, 2016, it was tough. It was a tough year. I know it's over. We can move into the positive. But I think there were some good things. I think for me, I'm really bullish on energy now. I think if you had asked me the same time last year, I said we're doomed. We don't even know. Please, the whole Kyoto, all that stuff. It's just a Band-Aid. We're screwed. Now I feel like there's a market impetus to move away from these, you know, these CO2 producing fuels. I think Tesla somehow, by some miracle, has has shifted the whole landscape on this. I mean, Elon Musk at large between Solar City and the Tesla. I think he's really making a change, Keith. It's huge. And this year we, you know, we reported on the, I think we reported on it, that solar panels themselves have finally reached a break point where they're, you know, they're producing enough energy and they've reached a cost effectiveness that they're paying for themselves now. They're working. And they have these venture funds for clean energy. So I just think that it's clear now all the market forces, like we always knew, when some money was to be made by cleaning up the earth, then that's when it would happen. And I think now that we really can't say no. We're hitting that point. And uh, you mentioned Tesla. I read an article that said that by like 2018, not very far away, Musk is predicting that they're going to be producing about 500,000 Tesla vehicles a year, which I think it's almost 
3% of the national market. Yeah, and you know, they're not the only ones. Now that he's in there, Chevy Volt, everybody's rushing the market. Mercedes, you know, everyone. You've got the high-end and the low-end electrical vehicles, and we're going to see a reduction in demand for petroleum. And so things are changing. Demands are changing. And it, it's, gonna, it's going to be very interesting. I think you're on the right track to be positive and excited about this. Yeah, well, just give me a couple of weeks. We'll see the, the first episode of the year. I'm going to be hating something. <laughs> Back to your pessimistic, cynical self. <laughs> That's my comfort zone, Kiki. That's my comfort zone. You know, when you expect nothing and you're angry, it's hard to be disappointed. I don't know. I'm also excited about hopefully more rockets landing Again, and not, you know, oh, the reusables. Yeah, those are really cool. Pretty much anything, everything Elon Musk is doing. I'm excited about that. Elon. And this is a guy, (laughs) he's like, he says when he says, oh, yeah, 2018, there'll be this and that. I'm like, yes, there will be because he's not one for, you know, BSing. He, He says it, he does it. He's the real thing, this guy. He is. Well, you know what? And this is also the real stem cell podcast. It is. We're doing it. No substitutes. No substitutes. And so I hope the show brings everyone into 2017 on a very positive note and that we're all very excited for another year of science ahead, another year of amazing discoveries ahead. I mean, you can send us your rant ideas. We'll be back to ranting, like Dalen said. If you have ideas, send them to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email us at stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. But this does it for us. Episode 82 of the Stem Cell Podcast. We have done it. It's a new year, Kiki. We're living in it. That's right. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks so much for the last year, Dalen. Looking forward to the next. You too. It's been great. 